Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please join me in Hebrews 9, 1 through 5, and today we're going to look at uh, tabernacle worship. Now, where we've been in the book of Hebrews, we have learned in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, that we're to grow beyond the ABCs, and that word really meant perfection. In chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, we, f we are to find our rest in Christ. That he, we no longer have to work to get our salvation or to keep our salvation. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, we learn that in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, when Christ came to this earth, it was the advent of the new covenant. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 4, we were to pay close attention to the gospel message. And then in chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, we're to check our hearts and to partner with Christ. And uh, in, in, in thinking about the, the tabernacle worship, which uh, was definitely part of the, uh, the Israel uh, system for worshiping God. Uh, I, I want to begin with, with a quote by Philip Hackney. Uh, Ritual seems to be very unimportant to most Christians today, and we are therefore relieved when we read in 9.5 to discover that the author has no time or space for further details on the furniture of the Jerusalem temple. However, he adds, a little thought reminds us that even the most informal worship has its rituals, even to the extent of always repeating the last line of the latest chorus. So when we go through this, and we're going to go through um, basically the Mosaic Temple, uh, the the Wilderness Temple, and so we're gonna we're gonna examine a lot of things this morning. I have a lot of uh, slides, but uh, we're going to begin now by looking at the holy place verses. 1 and 2 of chapter 9. And the writer writes, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. So we got to remember, as we left off in chapter 8, uh, in 8.13, the writer writes this, In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So when Christ ushered in the new covenant, the old covenant becomes obsolete. And uh, uh, again, the issue here is targeting the nation of Israel. Israel needs to turn to Christ to be saved because the old covenant has now been uh, made obsolete because of the advent of Christ. Now in one, also in, in verse one, we read, and an earthly place of holiness. Uh, an earthly place, cosmos, Cosmikos means pertaining to the earth, and hagios, the holiness, pertains to being consecrated to God or set apart for God. The issue here is that this was an earthly tabernacle. Christ ushers in a heavenly tabernacle, and so as we look at the at the uh, the Mosaic temple, you, you the wilderness temple, if you if you will. You'll, you'll notice here that in this diagram, you'll see that the, the length of the Moses Wilderness Tabernacle 
was roughly 50 yards by 25 yards in, in width. So pretty much like a, like a football, half a football field, and then 25 would be a, basically a half of a half. So these, this picture was taken from Numbers chapter 3. You had the tribe of Nathalia, you had the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Ishkar, you had the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Zebulun, you had the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Simon, the tribe of Gab, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Manasseh, and the tribe of Ephraim. So within this context, you'll notice that there's an outer court, and then there's a small area, which is called the holy place. And then, of course, you had the Holy of Holies. Now, this next picture, you, you can actually get this model uh, online, and you can even teach your kids. Uh, but here you'll notice the outer courtyard. You have uh, tables to the left and the right uh, of the brazen altar. Now the, now, the brazen altar was the place where the priest would put blood on the doorpost or not, not the doorpost, on, on the post of the altar. And then he would offer the sacrifice of the sheep, the lamb, whatever uh, whatever it was being offered. And we'll get into that in a minute. But all these tables to the right and left of the brazen altar was where the animals were killed. Then you have the bronze laver. And uh, the, the bronze laver, uh, the the priest, before he entered into uh, the holy place, would wash his hands. But it wasn't just for uh, the washing of his hands. He would also use that as a form of purification. So you have this, uh, you have this system here where the people can go no further than the uh, brazen altar. The priest would then go to the bronze laver and he would wash his hands and uh, before he entered into the holy place. Now let's talk about the types of sacrifices. Uh, there were sheep for burnt offerings. There was grain offerings, which would be the first, uh, the first part of the grain that, that you get. You always give God the best. And then there was a sin offering, which would be sometimes a goat. And then you had a peace offering, which would be a bull. Now, sometimes uh, people would offer birds as a, uh, a way of sacrifice. And uh, the birds often were basically uh, given by poor people who could not afford the other offerings. And so uh, they would offer birds instead. So you have these, these uh, different types of offerings. You have the sheep, the bull, the goat, the grain offering and the birds. Now, to drill down a little bit further, we'll look at Leviticus, and this is where I pulled it from. So here you have burnt offerings, and uh, it was a gift made for the atonement of sin or for the purpose of praise. And the portions that were given, God got all but the skin, the priest got nothing, and the people got nothing. And what was interesting is this was often accompanied by a grain offering. Grain offerings is the next category we're going to look at. It was a voluntary expression of devotion to God. And it's for his goodness and providence. So when the 
people would offer a burnt offering for atonement for sin, they would follow that up most of the time by a grain offering. Now we think about the grain offering, we think about it expresses a voluntary devotion to God. So they just didn't repent. They said, from now on, Lord, we're going to live for you. And, and it was a way of rededicating themselves to God. Then you had a fellowship or peace meal. Uh, it was an offering between uh, God and the people. And this is where it gets a little bit gross. God would get the fat, the kidneys, the lobe of the liver, and the fat trail, or fat tail. The priest would get the breast and the right thigh, and the people would get the leftover meat uh, that was not consumed. And again, notice from Leviticus that a grain offering was always associated with it. So it wasn't just like we're going to do an offering to God, we're going to rededicate ourselves to God. And then you had the um, the fourth one, which was the purification or sin, an offering for forgiveness of sin or to be cleansed from impurity. And again, different portions of the sacrifice would be given. To God, he was given the fat, the, the uh, kidneys, the lobe of the liver, and the fat tail. The priest would get meat except... <laughs> The, the, this is where it gets a little difficult, except the offering was for a priest or for the whole community. The people got nothing on the purification of sin. And of course, often, uh, the, uh, often offered with a burnt offering and, or a fellowship offering. So now we come to the last one, uh, reparation or guilt. So this was an atonement for violating the Lord's holy things or property of others accompanied by restitution. So again, God would get the, get the uh, portion of the sacrifice, the fat, the kidneys, the lobe of the liver, and the fat tail. The priest would get meat if the offering was for the priest or the whole community, the people would get none. And sometimes part of this series with sin there was a burnt offering or a grain offering. And I really got stuck on the grain offering this week because, you know, we often say in the Christian community, you know, somebody comes forward and they trust in Jesus Christ and then they, they go about their lives and they start drifting from God. And then one Sunday morning, the person will come forward and say, I want to rededicate my life to God. Well, that's the grain offering. That uh, that's shows not only repentance, but a willingness to uh, get your life back right with God. So this is how the Israelite uh, system worked. Now we're going to look at the components of the holy place or the elements of the holy place. Notice in verse 2, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which there was a lampstand and a table, uh, and and a table and the bread of the presence. So there were three elements involved in the holy place, not the most holy place, but the holy place. You had the menorah, which was to the left. You had the altar of incense, which was in the middle. And then you had the table of showbread. Now, in looking at the menorah, which has uh, basically seven branches, if, if you count them, we'll count them together. One, two, three, 
four, five, six. Now those six branches, and stop for a minute and look up at the top on, on this picture, you're going to see these little cups uh, in which the lamps would be burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Those were filled with olive oil and the priests would keep that lit. Basically, uh, it, it served a twofold purpose. One, to give light to the, uh, to the holy place, but it was also theological. So we just counted six branches. Those six branches reminded the Israelites that God created the world in six days. And of course, on the sixth day, he created man in his own image. Now that seventh branch, the seventh branch there, reminds us that God rested on the seventh day. So theologically, this represented the foundations of Genesis. And so if you look down at the bottom here, and I put a note here, it looks like a tree to remind us of a tree of life. And when you think about John and John writing in the Gospel of John, it's as if John looked at the holy place and he began applying all of this to Jesus. Um, in John 8, 12, we read this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So when we think about the holy place and the most holy place and the sacrificial system, it has to apply to Christ. Christ becomes the elements of Israel's worship. So quite fascinating that, um, that this simple little menorah has such rich theology, but that theology is also applied to Jesus Christ. Now we come to the right side of the holy place and we see the table of showbread. Now there's 12 loaves which were uh, given, they were made once a week. These 12 loaves refer to the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Now there's also, you'll notice here, two uh, cups. One was for pouring, one was for drinking. So wine was also associated with the table of showbread with the 12 tribes of Israel. On the Sabbath, the priest would eat the bread and drink wine. And the question is, why did he do that? Well, he did that because he was having a fellowship meal with God. This is also found in uh, Exodus chapter 24, where they would often do the sacrifices. They would, they would have fellowship with God. And of course, uh, everything from Exodus 19 to Exodus 34 was actually part of the Mosaic Covenant. And it ended with a fellowship with, meal with God. Now let's think about this. When we come to the New Testament, we find Jesus at the Lord's Supper with his disciples. What was present at the Lord's Supper? Bread and wine. So when the disciples sat down to eat, the Lord's Supper with the Lord, Jesus being God, they were having a fellowship meal with God. And, and so when we look at the, the covenant process, the same covenant process is playing out in the New Testament that was given in the Old Testament, except Christ is radicalizing how the covenant process goes. And uh, Jesus said in John 6.35, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me shall not thirst. John 6.35 So these elements or components of, uh, of the holy place can easily be applied to Christ. Now we come to the uh, altar of incense. You'll notice here in the picture uh, that there's blood on the four horns of the altar. Uh, if the priest felt like he possibly could have sinned, he would put blood on those horns for himself. And so I, you know, I guess if I was a priest, I'd be putting blood over everything. But um, the priest would burn incense morning and evening. Uh, again, uh, there would be smoke uh, billowing inside uh, the, the holy place. And that served two purposes. One is the smoke would mask the smell of the sacrifices in the outer court. So in other words, the priest would have that going. You couldn't smell the, the, the death of the animals and everything associated with that. But it was also symbolic of the priest praying to God for the people. And there's an interesting, um, you think about applying this uh, to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, 2, we read, And walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So already within this holy place, you have these three, these three elements. You have the menorah, that gives light to the um, to the holy place, and Jesus being the light of the world. You have the table of showbread with the twelve tribes, also referring to the twelve original disciples, and this really refers to the fellowship meal with God, which is part of the old covenant process playing out again in the new covenant. Then you have, of course, the altar of incense, where uh, prayers were being offered to God and that the priest had to be holy. And uh, probably in the next couple of weeks, uh, we'll move into that. But those are, the, those are the components. Those are the components or the elements of the holy place. And then we read, uh, it is called the holy place. Hagios, set apart for God. Now <clears throat> we're going to come to the most holy place. So you had this first curtain uh, in which the priest would leave the outer courts and the brazen uh, altar and the bronze laver. He would leave that and he would go through that curtain. But then there was a second curtain. And behind that second curtain was called the most holy place. Now you'll notice the most holy place. It was 20 cubics by 20 cubics by 20 cubics by 20 cubics. So that's roughly 15 feet. It was a perfect square. And when the priest went beyond that second curtain, he would come in to the, holy, the most holy place. And this happened only once a year. The priest entered the Holy of Holies to make sacrifices for the sins of the nation. This was called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kemper. And uh, within this most holy place, 
you had the Ark of the Covenant, you had the the two stone tablets, you had Aaron's staff, and you had uh, uh, manna in a gold bowl. So when we think about the most holy place, it was really where God lived. And for the Israelites, um, they could know that they could get into the presence of God and you had all these different tribes that we mentioned earlier, but that God dwelled in that most holy place. And it was so holy that only the priest, the high priest, could go in there once a year. Um, so now we're going to come to uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Movies have been made about this. There's been a, a, a lot of speculation. Uh, some say that the Ark of the Covenant is in uh, Ethiopia. Uh, nobody really knows. But um, we come now to the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant in 9, 4, and 5. And we read, which had a golden altar of incense. Now, the golden, of art, art, uh, the golden altar, altar of incense was actually in the holy, holy place. And here the writer is saying it was in uh, the most holy place. Well, there's an explanation for that. <clears throat> and the explanation, uh, a good one, is from Thomas Lay. The golden altar of incense was located in front of the curtain. And that's found in Exodus uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. So it was it actually stood in the holy place. This incense altar was vital for the burning of incense on the Day of Atonement which we just talked about. So it is associated with the Holy of Holies. Now, here's how you reconcile those two things. One is that the altar of incense was in the holy place, but as the priest would open, as he would open the curtain, the smoke from the altar of incense would blow in or go into the most holy place. Now, the reason for that is that the holy, the most holy place would fill up with smoke to mask the glory of God. So the priest could not actually look upon God, but, uh, and, in, and in this, the altar of incense did become part of the most holy place. Now, as we go into the most holy place, this is obviously a replica of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. But they had two cherubim, and then there was a place called the Mercy Seat. We often think that, you know, we often think that God was so archaic in the Old Testament, but God was still a God of mercy. He was a God of compassion. Think about the bird sacrifice. If you couldn't afford uh, a sheep or, or uh, <clears throat> and you, you, you didn't have grain, you didn't have, you could offer a bird. And that's how merciful God was. He cared for the poor. And here in the Ark of the Covenant, right at the base, or excuse me, the, the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, surrounded by these two cherubim, which, by the way, were also uh, present when Adam and Eve sinned, was set out of the Garden of Eden. The two cherubim uh, would protect the the place of perfection, the 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 wonderful a garden of Eden, which man was cast out of. But here the priest would put blood on the mercy seat. 
Isn't that fascinating? He would put blood on the mercy seat and God would have mercy on the people. And again, I know we look at the Old Testament and we think God was so hard and and he was. But God was also merciful. He was also a God of mercy and compassion and, and, and love. And so the priest would do this. He would put blood on the mercy seat and, and God would, would accept it. <clears throat> now, as we look inside, and this is a good picture. Uh, again, these are replicas. It's not the real, uh, the real contents of the Ark of the Covenant. So first you would have a bowl, in a, in a gold bowl, manna. So why manna? Why, why was manna in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it would be a time to remind the priest and the nation that God provides. God provided for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And let me remind us something today, that God provides for your needs and mine too. That the same God who has a mercy seat also has the ability to help provide what we need in our lives on a daily basis. And uh, just a, a, a beautiful reminder, not only as the priest looked upon it, but as a reminder to the people that God will provide. And I don't know what you're going through today, but let me just remind you, God will provide for you. And then there was Aaron's staff. So why was Aaron's staff part of um, the Ark of the Covenant. You have to go all the way back to when Moses was went up on Mount Sinai and he was gone 40 days and 40 nights. During that period, the people below said, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Aaron, let's build a golden calf. And so Aaron got involved, <laughs> uh, foolishly got involved with building uh, the golden calf, which the people would worship. Uh, and the Aaron's staff is a reminder to the people of Israel, don't rebel again. And so you have, you have God provides and Aaron's staff is a reminder uh, not to rebel against God. And of course, you know, the nation of Israel spent 40 years in a wilderness. Moses himself was not able to go into the promised land. God took him out and of course he raised up Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. And Joshua's name really means Yahweh saves and is applied to Christ. All of this stuff, all of this stuff is, is a reminder of Jesus fulfilling everything in the old covenant. And then lastly, you'll notice here in the picture that we have stone tablets or the commandments. That is the reminder to the nation of Israel that they're in a covenant relationship with God. Back when I was in Bible college, I might have mentioned this last week, but um, Dr. Haney in, in class one day said, Michael, don't think in terms of being saved. Think in terms of entering a covenant with God. So you had the old covenant and the new covenant, which was in Christ's blood, bringing us into a new covenant relationship with God. And by the way, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament is actually translated in Greek and Hebrew, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So we have entered in a covenant relationship with God. 
So now, the question is, um, how does this apply to us today? How does this apply to you and to me? And you'll note there in your, um, in your outline on the back of your bulletin uh, that I've put some personal applications. First of all, by thinking about how the priest entered the Holy of Holies, the holy place, uh, it reminds us that worship is serious. And yes, we're to come in, we're to be joyful, we're to be uh, praising God, but ultimately, worship is serious business. Paul writes in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we think about worship, when we think about coming through the sanctuary doors into this worship uh, center, this, uh, this worship tabernacle, it is a serious business. We are here to worship God, the one who redeemed us and paid for our sin in full. And so on, on Sunday mornings, when we come in here, worship should be serious. We should take a moment before we enter and say, God, I'm getting ready to worship you and how awesome that is. And it is a, a moment of serious reflection about what God has done for us. His mercy, which we have seen, uh, and, and maybe in our hearts, a grain offering, recommitting ourselves to God. It, it should be a place of, of, of seriousness and, and yes, joyfulness and, and all of those things, but ultimately we're here to worship God, the one who redeemed us. Secondly, it is a reminder that Christ is our permanent day of atonement. His blood has covered our sin. We are now children of God. We don't need um, we don't need to do anything else. Christ has done that for us. He went through the sacrificial system. He went into the holy place. He went into the most holy place. And the scriptures say that when Christ died, the veil of the temple was rent in two. And that that meant that we no longer need sacrifice day after day after day. Christ is our permanent sacrifice. And in this we can rejoice. A third thing it reminds us is that we ourselves are priests. And we have access to God. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood. Where does Peter get that language from? He gets the priesthood language from the Old Testament and applies it to believers. That's you and me. A holy nation, a people for God's own profession, uh, uh, possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is drawing from the Old Testament imagery where only the priest could go into the holy place and the most holy place, and he applies it to us. Now, I get this. I get this. Uh, people say, well, pastor, I want you to pray for me. I don't have a problem at all for that. I mean, doing that. I mean, that's, that's why I'm your pastor. I don't have a problem praying for you. But listen, you can go into the holy of holies yourself. You have that right 
as a child of God. Paul says, come boldly into the presence of God and find help and grace and mercy. You can do that yourselves. And, I, and I'm not saying that I would, I would say, well, you need to pray for yourself. No, no. I'm saying that you don't need me. Ultimately, you have access because you are priest and priestess. You have the ability to go into the presence of God by the permanent day of atonement blood of Christ. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. Number four. <clears throat> I'm sorry, my voice is going on me. Number four, in a sense, in a sense, this sanctuary is the Holy of Holies. On Sunday morning, when we come into the worship center and we come into the worship sanctuary, we are, in a sense, coming into the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to think that this God lives here? He dwells here and not only dwells here, but dwells in the hearts of you and me. And so this sanctuary, in a sense, it's not the wilderness tabernacle, I get that. But in a sense, this sanctuary, you are entering the Holy of Holies by the blood of Christ and you are priest within the kingdom of God. And that is fantastic. Number five, and finally, number five, I think it's good to have elements in worship. And, 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 and again, I was really uh, mesmerized by the grain offering. You know, we in the church, in the Baptist church, when you walk in, the pulpit is central. That is an element of worship. That means that the preaching of God's word is central to the life of the church. Behind me, you have the baptistry, which is part of our ordinances. There's two ordinances in the Baptist church. That is the Lord's Supper, the fellowship meal with God, if you will, and baptism, which is the beginning of the covenant process. Because if you go back and you read Exodus chapter 19, before God spoke in Exodus 20, the, the priest, uh, Moses, was washing the people's garment in the water. That's the same as baptism uh, for us today. So elements in worship, I think, are important. I was going to give you a, a piece of uh, 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 the, off, uh, the uh, Lord's Supper today. I was going to give you a wafer so that you could take home and be reminded of God's provision for you. So I, 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 I pray that this uh, sermon was, was helpful for you. And so uh, I would like to close now with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for loving us. Father, we, we thank you that you're the same God in the Old Testament that you are in the New Testament. Father, we thank you that the elements of the, the, the tabernacle are easily applied to Christ. Thank you that we have access to you. Thank you that you love us and you have mercy and compassion on us. Thank you that we are sealed by the blood of Christ and that we are permanent priests. Father, help our worship each Sunday to be glorifying to you and, 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 and to glorify you, not only in the worship service, but Father, that we would glorify you each day of our lives. Father, I pray now that you would speak to the hearts of your people, any decisions that need to be made this morning, that they would be made to bring glory 
to you and you alone. We thank you for sending Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.